thinking that I'm not needed, uh, it's actually a good thing, I think. And so um, we are in the book of Daniel, and just to kind of refresh us and where we were, we just looked at the first two verses in Daniel. And in those first two verses, what we saw was that God is absolutely in control. Because the first verse tells us that King Nebuchadnezzar came and conquered, right? But verse 2 reminds us that though history continues to, to play out, God is still the one who gave and delivered the people of God into Nebuchadnezzar's hands. And so what we saw was that God is still absolutely in control, that he is faithful. And because he is faithful, we are called to be faithful as well. So that brings us to verse 3. I'm going to ask Jenny Lynn to come up and give us the word of God this morning, or read the word of God this morning. (laughs) Starting in verse 3, this is on page 737 in the Bible in front of you. Follow along with me, if you will. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king, who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you, and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for ten days. At the end of ten days it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. And as these four youths, as, as for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them, and among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. This is the word of the Lord. Pray with me. 
Our Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning and we believe that this word of God that has been read is your words to us. And so, Father, I pray that you would give us ears to hear, eyes to see, so that we might be able to live lives that would engage this culture to keep our distinctive, but to love you and love the people you have called us to. Won't you do that, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me ask you a question this morning. Have you ever found yourself in a situation that you were uncomfortable in? A different context that you were not familiar with at all? Give you a second to think about that. I know for a lot of us, we think about maybe going to a foreign country, a foreign land, or maybe in a completely different context that you've never, you felt just completely uncomfortable in. But last week, I was in Atlanta. And you're like, oh, Atlanta, how is that a different land or country? But I was there last weekend with uh, five other pastors, and we're all Korean-American, and we're all in context in churches that are very multi-ethnic or multicultural. And so we use that weekend to learn and grow and fellowship together. But on the Sunday, after going to church, only two of us remained, both Korean-American pastors, and we went to this one restaurant that someone had suggested suggested this awesome soul food restaurant. It was a cafeteria, huge, maybe not as large as this, but about three-fourths this size. And as we sat down after getting our food, we sat down smack dab in the middle of this restaurant. And as we began to eat, I felt like I was completely out of place. You ask why? Well, as we're eating... Everyone around us is in their Sunday best. Suits, dresses. This is a secular establishment, just a normal restaurant. There are blacks, white, two Asians dressed like this. And I kid you not, every single person that sat down to eat, before they ate, bowed their heads and prayed. And I looked at my friend, I said, we are truly in the South. It was like a twilight zone. I mean, it was like we were at church and everyone prayed before they ate, but this wasn't church. And I felt so out of place, out of context. And I think about that when we come to this passage this morning because we're actually looking at this very important question of how do we respond to a culture that is completely different around us. Our culture in America is changing. We are experiencing today a massive shift away from the cultural consensus of the majority morals that we grew up with. We are becoming more post-Christian than ever before. Even in St. Louis, though some consider it the South, it is not Atlanta. It is not the Bible Belt. And we are beginning to see different views on sexuality, on family, parenting, drugs, finance, technology. And how do we respond to this? What's the key to responding when the world around you no longer shares the value systems that we grew up learning if you grew up in a Christian home? About what 
Scripture calls us to in our sexual ethic, in parenting, in family. What does or how do we respond? At best, the culture around us is indifferent to Christianity, but at worst, they're hostile to the Christian values and the gospel that we believe in. I had a conversation with a man that I've been getting to know over the years. And what he told me recently as Easter was approaching was, you know, I, I want to believe in Christianity. I want to believe that the resurrection actually happened. There is something in me that craves it, that yearns it, but I can't. I said, well, why? What is holding you back from believing in this Christian faith, in this Jesus? And he said, if I were to admit in Christianity, I would have to admit to the world and the culture around me that what I believe in is archaic, that I'm uneducated, that it's something that is so beneath me and primitive. That's what's holding him back from confessing his, his faith in Christ. And as the church, God is calling us to yet respond to the culture that is growing more hostile or indifferent. And how are we to do that? And in this passage, we see Daniel and his friends in the thick of it. How do they respond? How do we respond? I think today, there's three ways in which we respond to our culture around us. One way we do that is isolate, right? There's something in us that tells us we're to isolate, to avoid all possible interactions with this culture. And what isolation does, it, it values safety, right? That's where I grew up in my youth group and Christian as a, as, a, as a child and in my teen years. Evil is all out there. And so what we need to do is isolate ourselves and stay within our own little enclave. The other way we, we respond to culture is we fight, even to the point of being belligerent. And what we value there is control because we want to win every single sphere that our culture presents us with, whether it's political, the arts, education. We want to fight. And that's probably much more of the older culture here. Maybe if you're in your 60s, 70s, you grew up fighting for what we believed in. So that we might be able to, as Christians, be in control and in charge of the culture around us. The third way we do this is we assimilate. And what assimilation does, is it actually values acceptance. That we are determined to be a part of the world around us. To be passive and just go with the flow, to blend in and just get along. To not attract any negative attention or too much criticism. And sometimes what that leaves us though with is that it leaves us with really no Christian distinctive or Christian message or value to the culture and the world that's actually looking in to the Christian world. 
my question then for us is, is there another way? Is there a fourth way? And that's what the text here that we read in chapter 1 answers for us. And how we want to see this answered is look at three things. Babylon's mission, Daniel's response, and then lastly, how do we respond? What is our response? First, Babylon's mission. We find that in verses 3 through 7 here. Nebuchadnezzar was a very savvy, shrewd, calculating king. He wasn't just about exerting powerful force and his military to be able to conquer Israel and Egypt and all the nations around. He was actually much more savvy than just using his power. The best way he thought to actually conquer the nations around him was to assimilate every single foreign dictator, nobility, the intelligentsia of those nations to assimilate, to think, eat, act, just like a Babylonian. And so that's why he brings in Daniel and his three friends and others, the nobility, the intelligentsia, so that he could basically assimilate each and every single one who has influence and power to become and act and think like a Babylonian. Because if, they could, if he could get the, the top dogs, per se, then you could influence all the other people in that nation. And so that's what Nebuchadnezzar does. And so that's why in verses 3 through 7, you see his chief of staff, his chief eunuch, take these men and basically give, tell them what to eat, teach them the worldview, educate them, teach them about the Babylonian literature, math, medicine, astrology, pagan religion. And the kicker here is that they change the names of these four teenagers. Why does he do that? Well, what's significant about their names is that the Hebrew words for God are incorporated into their names. Daniel, Hananiah, Ayah was a word, Hebrew word for God. Mishael, Azariah. And what does he do? He changes it to incorporate names that reflected Babylonian uh, deities. Bel, Tishazar. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. And why he does that is that by changing their names, they lose everything that made them an Israelite, a worshiper of Yahweh, of the God of creation, and makes them people who would identify with the Babylonian ways to become worshipers of Babylon's deities and gods. And what is certain is that anything that reminded them of their origin and destiny was removed in the changing of their names. Now what I want us to draw from this is what Belted or what, what Nebuchadnezzar is doing is he's trying to show these four youth that if they bought in to Babylonians' worldview, if they bought into their food, into their culture, into their education, into their pagan gods, into astrology, what Nebuchadnezzar was banking on was that they would see that the way of 
the Babylonians was the best, most valued, treasured way of life. And that the God of Yahweh and of Israel, who was defeated, per se, was nothing. That to be successful, what to find your value in was to be a Babylonian. And that to follow Yahweh, the God of Israel, was absolutely nothing. Brothers and sisters, we live in those places constantly now, don't we? To be significant and to be treasured and valuable is to be fill in the blank. I remember even in my youth and hanging out with my friends, I was torn to figure out what was more valuable and more treasured. Is it to follow God or to live like my friends? To smoke weed or to just party it up and to date any girl and to get involved. We are constantly living in a place where we are trying to figure out what is most valuable for me. What am I going to crown king? And here, Babylon's mission, Nebuchadnezzar's mission, was to prove to the Daniel and his friends that the most prized possession, what is most valuable, was to be Babylonians. I can think of a few things for us that we think is most treasured in our culture today. It's to provide for our family and to give them comfort. Isn't that true? Even here in Crossroads. And that we will do anything, sacrifice anything for that cause. We'll sacrifice our family. We'll sacrifice our spouse. We'll sacrifice rest and relationships. For what? For promotions and more money. All for the sake of being able to provide for your family and give them comfort. For WashU students or those in high school, what do you value and what does culture tell us to value? It's to go to the best schools, to get into that Ivy League. And so what cost does that come at? Sometimes it comes at the cost of your own character. Sometimes it comes at the cost of not having any good relationships with friends, with friends because you are, your whole focus and mind is to get into that school for significance and power. There's so many things our culture offers us to say this is what is most valuable. And here, King Nebuchadnezzar does that. He offers this. Compromise your faith. Compromise what you believe in. Just do what everyone else is doing because that is what is most valuable. But what does Daniel do? Here we see Daniel's response in verse 8. He doesn't, he doesn't assimilate. He doesn't fight. He doesn't avoid or isolate. But look at verse 8. What does he do? Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine 
that he drank. And then if you jump down to verse 12, he said, test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. I mean, it's a head scratcher to go, well, what in the world is Daniel and his friends doing? I've heard of like this thing called the Daniel's diet. I know some of you have maybe done it before, so I don't want to completely knock it. But that is not the purpose of this passage and why the author tells us this story. Because in actuality, if you really look at what happens in verse 17, you know what happens? They get fat. <laughs> so if you think the Daniel's diet is good for you, here we find out they actually get fat. So take it for what it's worth. But that's not what's happening here. That's not, it's not to give us some great diet to lose weight and be healthy. Daniel here is doing something very subversive. He's doing something very subversive. Some argue that why he doesn't eat from the king's table is because the food has been offered to idols. Well, that can't be because even the vegetables that he asked to eat would have been offered to the idols and to the Babylonian gods. Others say it's because of the dietary laws as a Jewish man that they wouldn't be able to eat because of the kosher laws. But wine would have been kosher. And later on, as we go continue through this book, Daniel does eventually eat from the king's table. So what is going on? Why does Daniel do this? Daniel does this, I believe, because he sets his heart wholly and fully upon his God, Yahweh. He has chosen a subversive act that is private for themselves to be able to set their hearts on following Yahweh and keeping their Christian distinctive. Not Christian, but following God as a Jewish man. And this was the way that they chose to do it. And why I say that is look at verse 7. We lose, we lose the purpose of what the author was actually trying to do because of the translation. But literally, in the Hebrew, what the eunuch does is in verse 7, and the chief of the eunuchs sets their names. And then in verse 8, Daniel set that he would not defile himself. You see here, Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, the chief of the eunuchs, was trying to set them apart from Yahweh to becoming fully Babylonian. But what does Daniel do and his friends? He set upon his heart to choose not to defile himself with the food at the king's table. While the chief was trying to set his heart and his identity to become a Babylonian, Daniel set his heart to follow Yahweh. He sets upon himself not to defile himself with the king's food. Ralph Davis, a PCA professor who wrote a commentary, and Daniel said this. He said, Babylon was simply smothering Daniel and his friends. And so he recognized that if Babylon gets into you, the show is over. Hence, he had to draw the line at some point to preserve some distinctiveness to keep from being totally squeezed into Babylon's mold. In other words, Daniel and his friends 
took steps to ensure that they did not forget who they were, that they were the Lord's. They were okay with the education. They were okay with learning astrology and math and literature. They were okay with even their names being changed. But they knew in their hearts they had to set themselves apart to keep their distinctive in following Yahweh. How could they do this? Why would they do this? How could they continue to be in this culture? It's because Daniel and his friends came to know and believe that Yahweh, the God of Israel, the God of creation, was the most valuable treasured thing in the world. Even given all the riches, all the education of the Babylonian way, they knew in their hearts that the God of the cosmos, God of Israel, was the most valuable treasured thing in the world. And because of that, they set their hearts on this food, not to defile themselves. It was very subversive because no one knew about it. No one except this one who actually gave, was in charge of giving the food. It was a private matter. It was something for themselves. It wasn't some, like, it wasn't some food riot. It wasn't some march that they went on saying that their food is worse than, than the food of the Israelites. It was something that they kept in their hearts. And what did God do? God used it. God blessed them. They became ten times more fit and better than all of the others. And we know it's God because what does it say in verse, verse 8 or verse 9? God gave Daniel favor and compassion. And then in verse 17, God gave them learning and skill and in all literature and wisdom. God blessed their efforts and their hearts because they were faithful and they prized God above all other things. That leaves us then with the question of then how do we respond to culture? Is it to go on a Daniel diet? Abstain from all alcohol? Or to just listen to Christian music? Or to get your kids homeschooled or just Christian schools? I mean, what is it? How are we to engage our culture? Three things I want to hit for us this morning as we look at this passage. First, it's to look around. Look around. And what I mean by look around is see that God is at work. God is at work. Here, you see it clearly. Two weeks ago when we looked at verses 1 and 2, look at verse 2. God gave and God delivered. God was fully in control and God continues to be at work in the lives of Daniel and his friends. God is the one who gave favor. God is the one who gave them all understanding and made them ten times better than all the others. And we go, well, Daniel and his friends could do this because it was easy for them. This was not easy for them to do. Their hearts and eyes were always set back to their promised land in Israel, in Judah, and here they're in exile. And what this does 
is it reminds them and it gives them the ability to live distinct Christian lives because they knew that God was at work, that he is absolutely sovereign. I think about the way Daniel lived in Babylon and his firm belief that God is in control. How would that change how you live? To actually know that God is at work in our lives right now, in your workplaces, in your school, in your neighborhood. That though we might see the culture change around us and become much, much more post-Christian, to actually firmly believe that God is still at work, God is still sovereign, it gives us the courage, it gives us the hope to know that we can continue to remain distinct in our Christian ethics, in our Christian values, and to live as followers of Christ. I think that's why for us, these corporate gatherings are only going to become much more important in the life of the church here in America. I firmly believe that. Because as our culture becomes much more post-Christian, we have this opportunity once out of seven days to be renewed in our hearts, to be reminded that God is at work, and to go back out and to love and to engage and to be set apart for the work that he has called us to. I'm not calling this place this enclave, but it becomes a place where God renews us and meets us as our culture becomes more post-Christian. But that also impacts how we do what we do. Not that we change the content of what happens on Sunday mornings, but it's a question of how we do it. How do we disseminate what we believe as, as, as agnostics, as atheists, skeptics come into our church? How do we engage them? I think more and more, this time, Sunday mornings, are going to become so important for us to be reminded that God is at work renewing our hearts and that his kingdom is coming. No matter what our eyes see, it's praying, God, show me what you see. Break my heart for what breaks yours. And with that mission and confidence, we can continue to be distinctive followers of Christ wherever he's called us. Second is to look inside. And what I mean by that is we are called to set our hearts as Daniel and his friends set their hearts. You know, you look at what they did in just sort of saying, we're not going to eat and participate at the king's table. We're just going to eat vegetables and water. But what I noticed is that it's such a small little thing, but it made all the difference in the world. Because it's in those small things, as they were faithful and set their hearts upon God, they were then able to go into that fiery furnace in chapter 3. Daniel is then able to go into the lion's den in chapter 6. You see, if they weren't able to set their hearts now with the small things and not to compromise their faith, they would have never been able to do it later on. And here we are called to set our hearts on Christ. It's the small things that makes a difference in our lives as we continue to follow Christ. 
Kerry Newhoff wrote this. He said, the church is uniquely positioned to offer a radically beautiful alternative to the culture in so many key issues, like our sexuality, how we handle technology, our money, what we do with our bodies, and in basic disciplines like confession and self-control. When culture truly becomes post-Christian, it's often not that people are rejecting Christian teachings. It's that they don't even know what those teachings are. And they're surprisingly open to Christianity if the Christians they meet are loving and generous people. Many are open to a new way to live. And for us, it's figuring out for each of us, whether it's in community group, discipleship group, friendships, to figuring out what are ways that we could set our hearts to be subversive, to be able to offer an alternative that is absolutely attractive to the world around us. I think about in an age where sex is anything you want it to be. You know, you think about the hookup culture and how we're so casual about our sexuality and what we do with it. Our Christian faith teaches that sex is sacred and that we value, we value the who far more than the what which changes the what and the how. You know, you even hear that in our culture today as we see the Me Too movement. They recognize that something is wrong with just the hookup culture and the casualness of our sexuality and how we use it. What does it look like for us not to fight the culture, but to fight for good marriages, to fight for good friendships, to fight for what it looks like to practice justice and mercy. You see, these are very subversive, and it's setting our hearts on those things that we know offer something much more beautiful from the rubber meets the road for the outside culture and world to go, this still doesn't work. The hookup culture doesn't work. Greed and money doesn't solve my issues. Marriage and having children still leaves me lonely. And we get to offer something that is far more wonderful and beautiful for the world around us. How do we set our hearts to be able to keep our distinctives and offer something absolutely wonderful to the world around us? The last thing we see here is to look up. Not only to look around as we believe that God is at work, not only to look inside and setting our hearts, but lastly to look up. And what I mean by looking up is to see that God is king. God is king. The best verse in this passage is the one we probably all glossed over. Verse 21. Read this with me. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. This is amazing because Daniel stayed in the Babylonian Empire for 66 years, for its entirety, until it fell over. The author is saying that Babylon falls, but God's man Daniel is still standing. Daniel is still there and standing, but Babylon is not. God's people will endure while kingdoms rise and fall. Kings, kings and kingdoms pass, but God is still standing. And in 
absolute control. You see, we could follow and believe that Babylon is the most treasured, valued thing or the culture around us. But just getting in with Nebuchadnezzar lasts only for a short time. But being connected to the king is for an eternity. What do we value? What do we treasure? Because here we see that God is king. I know I'm going way over, but I just want to talk for a brief moment to those that are younger. And when I say younger, I guess I mean millennials, down to Gen Z, down to our our upper middle or upper elementary kids. One of the fears that I have, and I shared this last time, was that as our culture becomes much more post-Christian, and the things that we value are not here in Scripture, and we are no longer the moral majority, I do wonder, like, what will happen to the next generation, even as these kids come in? But what I want to press upon our youth and our youngins is that what you need to make a decision on what you value most. Is it our God the king or is it the culture that says compromise your faith and believe and just go with the flow with everything else that this world offers. Whether it's your education, money, your sexuality. And what I want to say is you need to think long and hard because like Babylon, the culture that you think is most valuable and worth it will crumble and fall. And Christianity will continue to hold up. If God isn't worth it now, it will not be worth it for you later on when you get older. What you choose now will prepare you for the future. The, the cost to follow Jesus is not getting easier. It's only getting harder. And so God has to become more valuable to you than anything else that the culture around you tells you. If I'm not going to change that later or now, I won't change it later. And for each and every single one of you, as you go to college, as you go into the working place, you have to come to a place where you realize what is most important in my life. Is it the God of creation of the scriptures or is it the culture that tells you it's not? And that's where I want you to wrestle. Your faith needs to become not something that your parents told you to come to church for or to read your Bible and to pray or even me as a pastor. But you need to internalize that faith. Like Daniel and his friends, they knew that Christ, that God was the king. And that's what we see in Jesus, isn't it? It's the song that we sing, Amazing Love. Christ came into this world, into a culture that was completely different. And he set his heart on his father. And when it cost him so much, it cost him even greater on the cross. Why? For you. He suffered and died for us so that we might be able to crown him as our king and follow him even when the culture around us says it's not the sexy thing to do and it's uneducated. We know that here we see 
through the scriptures, it offers a beautiful worldview that no other worldview can offer. And so for us, we come to the table asking the Lord to strengthen us and to give us what we need so that we might go into the world as people who would offer something so much more beautiful. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning. We thank you. We thank you for our Savior. Though it cost him so much, Lord, he was willing to go to the cross for us. And Lord, I pray that you would give us the courage. You would give us the love. You would give us the strength and the grace to be able to follow you all the days of our lives. Lord, won't you do that, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.